topic of our discourse Satya this evening is through purification gaining purity now if we were to all have purity of mind purity of verbal conduct and purity of bodily conduct probably we wouldn't have to be here and it is because certainly the opposite you know, tends to be the case that a necessity arises for purification that certainly then over time leads to purity. The Samyutanikaya in its Satna third volume, near section 151, contains Satna the following passage as Satna something to reflect on. Therefore, O retreatants, one should often reflect upon one's own mind thus. For a long time, this mind has been defiled by lust, by hatred and delusion. Through defilements of the mind, beings are defiled. With the cleansing of the mind, beings are purified. Now, purity is an important, purity is one of the seven main benefits to be gained from the Satipatthana practice and it is also a prerequisite for what? For enlightenment. That is correct. And so with without purity of one's bodily, verbal and mental conduct, it is impossible to gain uh, the peace of Nibbana. Now, several passages in the text attest to the importance of this purity. So in the Satipatthana Sutta itself, you know, the first uh, you know, benefit is given as Satanam Visuddhya, namely this practice leads to the purification of beings. And uh, we could certainly further say it leads to the purification of the mind. When you look at certainly the title of the Visuddhimagga, in English, it is the path of purification. And this path then 
Satan consists of seven major you know, purifications that are being outlined in you know, the uh, Visuddhi Magga. The Anguchanikaya also contains passages that highlight uh, the importance of uh, purity. And when retreaters, for instance, experience the breaking up of Fatna formations, which is a particular phase in the meditation practice, then a number of benefits or advantages are being ascribed to this particular phase of or stage of intuitive wisdom and you know, one benefit is um, namely that of a purified livelihood. The Visuddhi Magga in its first chapter paragraph 20 has this to say on purity, how virtue, so say those who know, itself as purity will show, and for its proximate cause, they tell the pair consisting of moral shame and fear of wrongdoing as well. This virtue is virtue, ethical conduct, morality, is manifested as the kinds of purity stated thus in the first volume of the Anguchar Nikaya, section 271, namely bodily purity, verbal purity, mental purity. And the relevant certain passage from the Angujanikaya reads as certain follows, namely, O retreatants, there are these three purities. What three? Bodily purity, verbal purity, and mental purity. And what is bodily purity? Here, someone abandons or abstains from the destruction of life, from taking what is not given, and from sexual misconduct. This is called bodily purity. And what is verbal purity? Here someone abstains from false speech, from slandering or divisive speech, from harsh speech and from idle chatter. This is called verbal purity. And what is mental purity? Here someone is without longing, without ill will and holds right view. This is called mental purity. These O oh, monastics, O oh, retreatants, are the three purities. Now, 
by observing the by taking and meticulously observing the training rules or you know, precepts our bodily conduct our verbal conduct become cultivated become refined become purified and already that represents a first step towards purity there's a huge difference between a person who couldn't care less about ethical conduct and will simply just do whatever he or she likes does not mind to step deliberately to step on an ant or swat a mosquito or a kill a fly or to uh, torment a fellow living or human being who doesn't mind taking what is not given who does not mind uh, indulging in sexual misconduct and in terms of speech has no restraint whatsoever so there's a huge difference between such a person who to whom ethical conduct means nothing and a person who can see the importance of virtuous ethical conduct now in our quest for purity and this purity then becoming one or being one out of the many prerequisites for the realization of Fatna the Dhamma, let us look at a particular training that Satna could be referred to as the training through restraint. And the Atasanini, which is certainly the commentary to the Dhamma Sangani, speaks of footnote two trainings, namely training through restraint as the first, and the training through abandoning. And both of these, each of these, consists of five different aspects now in the case of the training through restraint this consists of restraint by means of morality or virtuous conduct see less water in the Pali scriptural language then as number two restrained by means of mindfulness sati samwara in the Pali scriptural language 
as number three, we have restraint by wisdom, jnana samvara, followed by restraint through patience, kanti samvara, and the last one is restraint through effort, virya samvara. Now, just for the sake of completion, the second training, namely that restraining training through abandoning, consists of the following five aspects, namely abandoning through the opposite or substitution of opposites, then abandoning through suppression, abandoning through destruction, abandoning through tranquilization, and abandoning through uh, liberation. Now, to elaborate, a bit on uh, the first uh, restraint. Restraint by means of morality, sila samwara. Now, according to the commentaries, this refers to the observation of monastic precepts or monastic laws. So then it would concern Sialid, it would concern you, it would concern Venera Achan Kemako, and it would concern Brother Tree. And the others? Anybody taking five of the precepts? There you go. And so for the lay retreatants among us, we simply transpose what applies to the monastics, to the laity. And so the lay retreatants are also observing a code of conduct, not the monastic vows, but consisting in either the five precepts or uh, eight precepts or ten precepts, as the case may be. And through so doing, a person's bodily conduct and a person's verbal conduct already become significantly um, purified. Now, is this certainly something that we achieve just with one stroke? It is an ongoing project. An experience shows that as certainly we keep developing our mindfulness, and our mindfulness becomes certainly sharper and sharper, more and more tuned into whatever predominant object comes up, we will 
be much more, we, will, we become much more aware of things like intentions. Intention to do this or that, intention to say this or that. And if we're fully aware of those intentions, especially if they're unwholesome, then, then what? If we're fully aware of those, then we simply don't act on them. We don't act on an unwholesome intention, and as a result of this, our conduct is purified. One more time, purified. Now, a violation of this kind of restraint is referred to as self-indulgence through immoral conduct in the Pali scriptural language given as dusila asamwara. Samwara means restraint. The prefix a is a negative marker and so lack of restraint and certainly so um, self-indulgence in, through uh, immoral conduct, through lack of uh, restraint. In the case of the monastics, breaking this or that certain precept then will be tantamount to verbally, uh, to a verbal or uh, bodily breach of uh, the monastic uh, code. Now, would you say that this restraint by means of virtuous conduct is enough or not? Well, what is missing? What's that? Effort. Effort, okay. And that so restrained by way of virtuous conduct, it helps us to purify our bodily conduct, it helps us to purify our verbal conduct, and what about the mental conduct? Hmm? Indirectly. Now, the second restraint is known as restraint by means of mindfulness. Sati, some water in the Pali scriptural language. Sati being mindfulness, some water meaning restraint. Now, this refers to restraint of the senses. Namely, restraint of the eye, chakusamwara, restraint of the ear, restraint of the nose, restraint of the tongue, restraint of the body, and restraint of the mind. Now, in this context, 
we could distinguish two levels of restraint, two stages of restraint. The first one is restraint is certain um, tantamount to the restraint of the sense doors in Julia somewhere in the Panitna scriptural language. And the instructions that we find in the Majimanikaya in this regard are the following. Namely, because Begonis certain monastics and lay retreatants, you should train thus. We will guard the doors of our sense faculties. On seeing a form with the eye, we will not grasp at its signs and specific features. And the Pali term for signs is nimita, and certainly then the features, the Pali term for this is anubhyanjana. And since if we left the eye faculty unguarded, unwholesome states of covetousness and grief might invade us. And so therefore we will practice the way of its restraint, we will guard the eye faculty, we will undertake the restraint of the eye faculty. And then the same thing is being um, applied to Near the hearing process. On hearing a sound with the ear, on smelling an odor with the nose, on tasting a flavor with the tongue, on touching a tangible object or some tactile uh, impression with the body, on cognizing a mind object with the mind, and we will not grasp at its signs and features. So basically, restraint of the senses in this context is given as not grasping the signs or and or features of the object. Now, the signs, just to explain a bit more here, refers to you know, the general, uh, the major uh, aspects of a person. So let's say, uh, one is walking down a road, and certainly at a distance, one sees some object coming towards oneself. As that object is coming nearer and nearer, sooner or later one recognizes this is a human being. When that person comes even nearer, 
based on certain features, you know, one rec or based on certain signs, one recognizes, oh, this is a man or this is a woman. So that's, uh, this is certainly what is meant you know, by the sign. So general, you know, some major you know, signs. When that person comes even closer, one might then you know, start to you know, discern his or her facial features, such as you know, maybe you know, the eyes, the color of the eyes, you know, the nose, the mouth, uh, you know, the entire shape of you know, the face, and so on and so forth. That you know, then you know, would fall under the, under the term feature anupyanjana. So, ordinary restraint of the senses, indriya samvara, in this context, context consists of not grasping mm, at the signs and features. And why is that? Because if we were to leave the idor unguarded, unwholesome states of covetousness and grief you know, might invade us. And so we will practice, therefore we will practice the way of, the, of its restraint of you know, the uh, eye faculty and so on and so forth. When we see a person coming towards us, we might certainly pay attention to you know, things like, is this person, what's you know, the appearance like of this certain you know, person? Is this person that's coming along handsome or not, beautiful or not? Are you know, the movements of you know, that certain person agreeable or not? Now, this is what we typically or naturally do. Paying closer attention to grasping the signs and features of an object then is considered a form of indriya asamvara, so a lack of fatna restraint as regards to the saints' faculties. Now, as stated by the Buddha in the passage just quoted, this indriya asamvara typically leads to you know, the arising of either covetousness, abhijja in the Pali scripture language, or to dejection, dormanasa, in you know, the Pali you know, scriptural language. Now, in the absence of further restraint, by grasping the signs, the various signs and features, one might end up 
being attracted to the object. And it could well be that a feeling arises, either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, and if it's if the object then with with regard to which one is not restraining you know, one's certain sense faculties, if that object is a desirable object, then most likely an uh, an a pleasant feeling will accompany you know, the experience. And when we delight in that certain feeling and we welcome it and persist in clinging to it, well, then um, this will have all sorts of further consequences. With this, the mind clearly becomes certain polluted. When there is a lack of restraint with regard to an undesirable object, then dejection will arise, and then, or, or there will be contact. Based on the contact, a feeling will arise, either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. In the, in the case of an undesirable object, it will be an unpleasant feeling, and then this may lead to the object being perceived as repulsive. And so in both cases, the end result is an unwholesome one. Now, the Venerable Mahasisad of Fatna Burma, in his Vipassana Shunijan, nowadays translate or, uh, or somewhat recently translated into the English language as the Manual of Insight, states that this restraint by means of mindfulness is the true restraint of the senses. So in an ultimate sense, it is mindfulness that restrains the six sense doors in order to prevent the arising of defilements. Forgetting to be mindful will lead to self-indulgence. Mutasatya asamwara in the Pali scripture language that manifests as covetousness and aversion. As described in a passage should given in the Diganikaya as greed and sorrow, unskilled sadness states would overwhelm a retreatant if he or she dwells, leaving the eye faculty unguarded. Now, what does this mean? in practice for us. We're practicing Satipatthana meditation as 
outlined certainly by the Buddha and the Satipatthana Sutta and certain other related discourses with you know, further explanations given by the venerable Mahasi Sayadaw of Fatna Burma. And so when the seeing process takes place, some visible object occurs, then what do we do? We label or note it as seeing, this is correct, and suddenly then, and we do this five minutes after the object has arisen, <laughs> we do it right away. And suddenly, so it has to be done as quickly as possible. So, as soon as this visible object comes into um, our field of observation, right away we want to recognize it, label it as seeing, and suddenly then we carefully want to observe you know, the seeing process from start to you know, finish, or from start, you know, from start to finish. Now, this then, if you know, the mindfulness is super sharp, we might mm, notice already you know, the seeing process at the moment of contact, namely when the visible object impinges on the eye sensitivity. And the coming together of you know, those two leads to the arising of seeing consciousness and you know, the coming together of those three, namely the visible object, the eye sensitivity and seeing consciousness is known as seeing contact, fasa in the Pali scriptural language. If we can uh, catch the seeing process already at that point, not much uh, uh, unwholesomeness will follow. If that's not possible, then a moment later, namely when a feeling arises with regard to the seeing process. So based on contact, seeing, feeling, Vedana will arise and if our mindfulness is really sharp then we become we become aware of this and simply being aware of a pleasant feeling will then still lead on to the arising of covetousness of desire it will not and in the case of an undesirable object and an unpleasant feeling, if we're mindful of it, as and when it occurs, will there be a consequence in the form of dejection? Nope. And so in that case, you know, then the mind satna remains pure. The same, or and if the mindfulness is not that sharp as yet, then possibly 
we can catch certain the seeing process at certain the moment of perception when the, the mind certainly recognizes and perceives an object for a uh, visible object for what it is. The sooner one becomes mindful of the seeing process, of the hearing process, of the smelling process, etc., the better. So restraint by means of mindfulness, satisamvara, is given in the context of the various sense door processes. And when we mindfully observe either the seeing process or hearing or smelling process, the remaining processes, we want to we want to do so as outlined in the Satipatthana Sutta itself, namely contemplating the respective uh, sense door process, ardent clearly comprehending, mindful, having removed covetousness and discontent in regard to the world. And the term ardent is certainly related, is an aspect of uh, effort, of energy, and in fact, uh, one of the five restraints, naming the last one, is just about that. And so more on it in a uh, moment. Now, when we practice this restraint of uh, the senses through mindfulness, then we want to make sure that our mindfulness uh, fulfills the ideal uh, uh, qualifications, namely that the mind, rather than in a superficial manner skimming over the object of observation, that the mind is sinking into the respective uh, object of observation, and that being the characteristic of mindfulness. And its function is given as maintaining unforgetfulness, asamosa arasa, in the Pali scriptural language. So we do not forget to be mindful of whatever predominant uh, sense object, sense sphere object arises. We then further want to make sure that our mindfulness fulfills 
the first manifestation of mindfulness and that being a state of confrontation, a state of facing the object. We say Vimukha Bhava Pachapatana in the Pali scriptural language. The state of being face to face with the respective object of observation. And a firm, strong perception of the respective object of observation is said to be the proximate cause for the arising of mindfulness. Now, in the course of one single day, in the life of a meditator, here at the Columbine Inn, during this five-week retreat, do we have only very limited opportunities to practice this restraint of Fatna the senses, or ample opportunities? Ample, there you go. Plenty of opportunities all day long. And if it's not the seeing process, and instead the hearing process comes to the foreground, let's say some truck drives by and uh, uh, this goes along with uh, a certain sound, then we want to be mindful of that. Or if uh, there is a strong uh, smell or odor, uh, again we could be mindful of the smelling process, or in approaching you know, the dining hall, yeah, in approaching you know, the dining hall, and when actually, you know, well, when taking the food and sitting down you know, to eat, and suddenly as we begin to you know, eat, you know, then each mouthful of food will be accompanied by a certain taste. And once again, we have plenty of opportunities to practice this restraint by means of mindfulness. And the same thing then also goes for tactile processes and mental processes. Now, the third Restraint, as explained by the Atasalini, given in the Pali scriptural language as Jnana Samvara, in English is given as restraint by means of wisdom. Now, According to such texts as the Chulanidesa and the Sutanipata commentary, restraint by means of wisdom occurs with the attainment of path knowledges. It further states the wisdom of path knowledge that restraints the current of unwholesomeness such as craving 
wrong views, defilements, misbehavior, ignorance, etc. And this is called restraint by means of wisdom. So, now, what does this mean? When a retreatant has practiced for a significant amount of time and has cultivated his or her practice, has brought about a significant amount of, or established a significant amount of purity, sooner or later, when all the necessary conditions are present, then path knowledge may take place, or might take place. When that happens, so when the path knowledge related to the first path, namely path of stream entry, Sotapatimaka in the Pali scriptural language occurs, this will go along with what? This will, this particular experience has any kind of pertinent consequences or not? Will you be the same person before and after? Ah, oh, now you say no. And so what's the difference then? Um, fetters are broken. The certain fetters will be broken. That's it. Certain fetters, three fetters, will be uprooted, eradicated from the stream of consciousness once and forever. Sakaya Deti is the first one, namely the wrongful belief in the existence of a self. And then we have as Satna number two, Skepna, the fetter of skeptical doubt, Wichikicha in the Bali scriptural language. And the last one is the fetter of yes, wrongful belief in rites and rituals, thinking that those uh, may uh, or are useful to gain the Dhamma, which of course is not uh, the case. Now, once these uh, three fetters have been eradicated from the stream of consciousness, can they ever again contribute to impurity of the mind? They cannot, because they're gone. What is gone is gone. Now, with that, it is indeed true that there is restraint by means of wisdom. But this is pretty much in an absolute sense. Is this the only form of restraint by means of wisdom? What about when we, um, as retreatants, go about our work of carefully labeling, observing, and knowing predominant objects. Would you say restraint by means of wisdom is happening or not happening? To some extent. To some extent, yes. Namely, every time that we're fully mindful Mindful from moment to moment, and certainly this is certain based on continuous effort, and we're practicing with a concentrated, focused uh, mind, collected uh, mind. Then, 
quite naturally intuitive wisdom will arise and when wisdom arises during those moments when wisdom arises and is present during those moments the mind will be defiled or not it will temporarily not be defiled there you go and so if you look at it on a microscopic analysis or if you do a microscopic analysis of what is happening from moment to moment in a yogi's practice, then you will see to some extent some restraint by means of wisdom is happening. The Visuddhi Magga recommends reflections on the purpose of using the four requisites that's primarily for the monastics but being mindful of whatever happens and certainly with the arising of intuitive wisdom at least on a temporary basis this is by far more effective and the opposite to this would be self-indulgence through uh, absence of wisdom so whether wisdom is there or not, it doesn't you know, to such a person. It doesn't matter. One couldn't care it, you know, less, and then you know, it's tantamount. And then one does whatever you know, one likes, and so it's tantamount, tantamount you know, to inviting you know, defilements. Now, so through restraint by virtuous conduct, restraint by means of mindfulness, and restraint by means of wisdom, we can already um, contribute to impurity in a major way. Yet, for meditators, there's still you know, situations where other forms of restraint may be quite useful. Now, being here at the Columbine Inn on retreat during the daytime when the sun is out, it's nice and warm. And certainly after the sun has set, it, you know, the temperature you know, drops uh, uh, substantially. And early in the morning, it's quite cold. So being thrown from one extreme into you know, the other, or having to you know, put up with you know, flies, or mosquitoes, not quite yet, but uh, it might still happen when it gets warmer. 
having to be, let's say, um, having to be uh, spoken to uh, uh, during the retreat, at times during an interview or you know, during other uh, uh, other circumstances, in a bit uh, rough manner, this requires what? Patience. There you go. This requires patience. Patience in the sense of not retaliating in the sense of enduring, enduring the heat and enduring the cold, enduring the flies and the mosquitoes, enduring being spoken to in harsh words. So, in this context, so this sudden we then refer to as restraint by means of forbearance or patience, kanti samwara in the Pali scriptural language. Now, the commentary to the Charya Pitaka defines patience as having the characteristic of acceptance. Its function is to endure the desirable as well as the undesirable and its manifestation as tolerance or non-opposition and its proximate cause as seeing things according to reality. Now, To endure the desirable as well as the undesirable is one of the aspects of patience, of Kanti. Now, patience is required with regard to the failings of others, and not only this, but also with regard to one's own shortcomings, because except for the Buddha, no one, nobody is perfect. Now, the Dhammasangani contains a number of synonyms for patience which highlight different aspects. And those are Number one, the ability of a person to forgive. In the Pali scriptural language, given as kamanata. And secondly, as you know, to endure. To endure the desirable or the undesirable. Adiwasanata in the Pali scriptural language. The third aspect is that of gentleness, achandikam, and the fourth as freedom from harshness or bluntness, anasurupo in the Pali scripture language, and the last one, contentment of mind, atamanata, chitasa.
So these are all beautiful aspects. Now, patience is not a separate certain mental factor, but rather an aspect that comes under the mental factor of non-hatred adosa in the Pali scriptural language. And so patience is that condition that is contrary, the Vinayaka explains, contrary to anger. Patience is somewhat, but not quite, similar to uh, loving kindness, metta. When we compare the two, patience and loving kindness, metta, which one would you say has a greater application, a wider application? Pardon me? Metta, that's correct. So metta has a far wider application because it's being practiced towards all beings wishing for the welfare and happiness of all beings without any um, uh, exception whatsoever. Whereas patience is required in certain circumstances with regard to, let's say, certain uh, people. So not necessarily all uh, the time. Now, the text, the Anguja Nikaya, in its second Satna volume, contains a passage, namely you know, section 117, that you know, des- describes what enduring patiently is all about. And that very much applies to us as retreatants. And how is a monastic or lay retreatant one who patiently endures? Here, retreat and patiently endures cold, heat, hunger, and thirst, contact with flies and mosquitoes, contact with wind, the burning sun, and sadness snakes, rude and offensive ways of speech. One is able to bear up or to endure with a reason bodily feelings that are painful, raking, sharp, piercing, harrowing, disagreeable, sapping one's vitality. It is in this way that a retreatant is one who patiently endures. And patience is also very much required with regard to um, the speech of others. And we cannot expect to be spoken to in um, language that is soothing to the ears at all times, 
that will be totally unrealistic and sadness or on occasion will just have to uh, endure uh, harsh uh, words or unjust uh, words and we have to endure this uh, patiently. The opposite to restraint by means of forbearance comes in the form of self-indulgence due to impatience, akanti asamwara in the Pali scriptural language. And self-indulgence will just do whatever we like. We, we couldn't set the care yeah, less we couldn't care about Satna being patient, but rather uh, show our impatience, our hostility yeah, towards Satna uh, another uh, person or towards a certain uh, situation. The last among the five kinds or ways of restraint consists of restraint by means of effort. Virya Samwara in the Pali scriptural language. And by effort is meant here exerting energy to abandon unwholesome um, thoughts such as thoughts of sensual pleasure, thoughts of ill-will, thoughts of cruelty and the like. And the Venerable Masi side of Burma explains in an ultimate sense this refers to the four kinds of supreme effort Namely, in the words of the Buddha, here a retreatant awakens zeal for the non-arising of so far unarisen, unwholesome states. And one makes an effort, arouses energy, exerts one's mind, and strives. That's number one. The second aspect is one awakens zeal for the abandoning of a reason, uh, already a reason, unwholesome states. The third form of supreme effort consists in one awakens zeal for the arising of so far unarisen wholesome states. One makes effort, arouses energy, exerts one's mind, one strives towards this. And the fourth aspect is one awakens certain zeal for the continuance, for the non-disappearance, strengthening, increase and fulfillment by development of arisen, already arisen, wholesome states. And one makes an effort, arouses energy, 
exerts one's mind and strives. And thereby one then realizes the Dhamma. Now, for this uh, form, for this fifth form of restraint, again, plenty of practice opportunities uh, will arise or will be there in the course of uh, this retreat. And so, on occasion, some desire might arise, on another occasion some ill will might arise, on occasion some ignorance might arise, or uh, some pride and conceit might come in, or some wrong view that might certainly arise, etc. And to practice this fourfold effort as the situation might require. Now, this in this way too, we can contribute to the overall purity of the mind. And this is clearly within our means. The opposite of restraint by means of effort would certainly consist in self-indulgence through idleness or laziness. So even though some unwholesome state uh, uh, is there, you know, one simply uh, is not prepared to exert effort, make zeal and so on, and one just lets it happen. This is certainly referred to as Kosaja Asamara in the Pali scriptural language. Now, the Venerable side of Burma takes this exploration of the five you know, restraints further by you know, recommending that one also uh, exert on occasion self-control in a sense that one exerts certain self-control namely to think, talk and act only in wholesome ways, let only wholesomeness come in through one six sense doors. Bear patiently with whatever may happen, make a great effort not to entertain unwholesome thoughts. Another approach consists in transforming of thoughts. If unwholesome thoughts arise, they should be transformed into wholesome thoughts. 
If, for instance, upon seeing a handsome man or beautiful woman, one and due to this, some defiled thoughts arise in the mind. One should then see this handsome man as one's sudden brother or father, or if it's a beautiful woman, one should certainly see her as one's mother or sister. And certainly with that, it's less likely that some sensuous or defiled thoughts will arise in the mind. Or further, one could consider to contemplate the foulness, the impurities in the other person's body. Now, the next suggestion the Venerable Masisado, in short, gives as follows, namely, keeping busy doing good. And that's a really beautiful motto. So basically we have to be like the honeybees and continuously eager to develop wholesomeness. Now, for instance, in the monasteries, the monastics are always encouraged to keep busy learning the text, teaching and memorizing, reading, scrutinizing, chanting, discussing Dhamma, giving Dhamma talks, listening to discourses, etc. And when one is engaged in you know, those kind of Dhamma activities, will there be much room for unawesomeness to arise? Most likely not. And so if we keep the mind busy with you know, this or that certain Dhamma activity, then you know, uh, this ensures a relative you know, purity of the mind. One that last approach, as recommended by you know, the Venerable Masis out of Burma, and it's a you know, very you know, relevant approach, namely paying attention to wise attention, steering one's mind toward wholesomeness. Now, this is really important around the hindrances and also in regard to the seven enlightenment factors. Namely, when you look at certain passages, especially in the Samyutta Nikaya, with regard to you know, the hindrances, there is the nourishing of this or that hindrance, but there's also the denourishing of this or that hindrance. And the critical factor is either the absence or the presence of wise attention, yoniso manasikara in the Pali scriptural language. So, if, for instance, after a long sitting, we then 
uh, stretch our legs in a lazy manner, roll over, lie on the floor and take a nap. And we think, oh, that's perfectly okay, and uh, this is such a relaxed retreat, uh, the teachers will not mind. This is giving wise attention or unwise attention to this particular activity. What would you say? Unwise attention. So if we keep giving unwise attention to sensuous satna, to sensual desire, to ill will, to sloth and torpor, to restlessness and remorse, and skeptical doubt, then no wonder that these will increase. But if we encourage wise attention around sense desire, around ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness and remorse, and skeptical doubt, this will lead to the denourishing of those particular hindrances. And so if we keep this aspect in mind, and it can come up in various contexts in the course of Fatna day, then this would be yet another way of contributing towards Satna purity. Allow me to conclude today's Satna discourse wishing, starting from this very moment, may we all make the greatest possible effort towards a purification, a continuous purification of Fatna, the mind, and Satna may this ultimately lead to the greatest possible purity of our bodily conduct, verbal conduct, and mental conduct, and thus be one of several prerequisites for the realization of the peace of Nibbana within this very existence. And this is it for the discourse. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.